0: Good morning again, welcome. We'll continue reading in Revelation chapter 1. If you're new to the Bible, this is the very last book of the Bible. Uh, The big numbers, we call them chapters. The little numbers, we call them verses. I'm going to start reading from Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 9. I I wore my dragon tie for all of you today (laughs) to commemorate it. Revelation 1, 9. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying... And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come once again to this final climactic book of this wonderful book of books. And once again, as we do from week to week, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things here in your word. And we ask most of all that you would show us the glory of Jesus so that we might come to worship him and love him forever. Amen. I've been on something of a kick lately, reading fairy tales. And so I was delighted when I came across this quote by G.K. Chesterton recently. Uh, One of my favorite authors, he's defending fairy tales about 100 years ago against accusations that they're too morbid, And too scary for children. He says fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already, because it's in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of the boogeyman. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of the boogeyman. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. Everybody agrees that the book of Revelation is difficult. And many people view it as scary. But like Chesterton's point about fairy tales, the book of Revelation is here to help us. It's here to comfort us. It's here to encourage us. It's here to show us that Jesus really does slay the dragon that stalks the earth and has haunted his people all over the world and all through their history. Now, Revelation, of course, is not a fairy tale or a myth in the sense of being untrue or unreal or made up. It's a letter from Jesus himself delivered in the first century to the apostle John to reveal something to Jesus's own churches. It does this by speaking to and about the reality of Jesus's actual good rule over this actual evil world. But it does it in the form of a highly vivid and symbolic genre of literature called apocalyptic. This is an ancient Jewish form of writing. You find it in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it pops up a couple times. It pops up in the Gospels even. Uh, the most famous example of it is here in the book of Revelation, but you also find it outside of the Bible in other uh, Jewish writings from about the same time period. Uh, this ancient form of writing, the genre of apocalyptic literature, is meant to unveil, to reveal the true nature of terrifying circumstances and experiences in the world of the people who are hearing it or reading it. The original recipients of this prophecy were scared and confused about what was going on around them, what was happening to them, about how it raises serious questions about Jesus' claim to be in charge of everything. And people are scared today too, aren't they? Amidst skyrocketing rates of anxiety and addiction and suicide, modern Americans are deeply unsettled about the world and what it all means. I just read a couple days ago about a new study on how over the last 60 years, the languages of the developed world have become significantly more pessimistic. Words about caution and worry and risk are showing up more and more often, while words about progress in the future have declined rapidly. And like the wider world, many Christians look around at all kinds of decline inside and outside of the church. And they too are discouraged and worried and gloomy. And so while many Christians and perhaps some of you have been kind of scared of the book of Revelation with all of its wild depictions of prostitutes riding monsters and violence and wrath and vomit and suffering, we still need to understand that this final book of the Bible is meant to comfort us and to help us, that it does this by showing us not only that Jesus wins, but that we, his church, also win with him and in him. And like I said, Revelation is a difficult and demanding book. Christians have struggled for thousands of years to understand it. And so to help you get your bearings, I want to briefly explain to you the few basic ways that Christians have approached this book for the last 2,000 years. The first way, and the one that has become the most common in American churches for about the last 100 years, is to approach it, As though it were a book describing events at the very end of human history, at least as we know it, describing things that are going to happen right before Jesus returns. Uh, This is not a new way to read the book of Revelation. It's popped up throughout history, but it's certainly the most influential one in our country today. Uh, Those who have read it this way, those who do read it this way, inevitably tend to think that it means that Revelation is talking about their own time and their own society and their own world. And so they treat it as something to be decoded in terms of contemporary things uh, like Apache helicopters or the Soviet Union or the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. A related approach is to understand this book as describing the whole history of the church, From the first coming of Jesus all the way up to the second coming of Jesus uh, with decodings of things like the rise of Islam or the Protestant Reformation and so on. Uh, Now another approach is to treat it and view it very similarly to the ways that other prophecies in the Bible function. That it is mainly describing events that for the original audience were about to happen, but for us today have already happened. Uh, And yet it still has ongoing significance for us today. It has ongoing significance for us to understand events that are still yet to come for everybody at the final judgment and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, In this approach, Revelation is speaking a great deal about God's wrath against the Roman Empire for the many ways that it persecuted the early Christians. And then depending on whether or not you think John was writing this before or after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, something that Jesus himself had specifically predicted with all kinds of language, very similar to the book of Revelation, whether or not you think this book was written before or after that event happened, uh, in this approach, the book may also be describing the Roman devastation of Jerusalem as God's wrath against Jewish opponents of Jesus And the early Christians. And then finally, in another approach, uh, Revelation is a book that uses repetitive, cyclical visions, not to describe specific historical events, whether they are in the past or still yet in the future, but instead that these cyclical visions that build on each other are rather describing larger, high elevation, cosmic realities and principles about how God has battled evil about how God has guarded his people ever since the first coming of Jesus and as he's going to keep doing until the second coming of Jesus. In this view, it's describing the experience of the whole church as we await and then arrive at Jesus' second comings. And to be honest, I am still not entirely sure how to understand every part of Revelation or which one of these approaches is the best way to approach it. Uh, I continue to learn along with you. But I do think, and you don't have to agree with me, I do think that some kind of combination of those last two approaches uh, is the best way to understand it on its own terms and in the context of the whole Bible. Uh, That it's mainly describing something that was about to happen to John's audience, but that as it does that, it's also foreshadowing the way that God is at work all the way up to and in Jesus' second coming. I think this is probably the best way to approach it and treat it on the the terms that it gives to us rather than us bringing to it our own ideas or demands from it. I think we need to take seriously the fact that this book is specifically written to seven actual local churches in the first century. It it repeatedly reminds you of that in the first few chapters. Uh, We need to take seriously the ways that this book, in both its opening and its clothing, closing, is talking about something that is going to happen to these churches very soon. It keeps saying in the beginning and the end, this is about to happen. This is about to happen. We're talking about things that are about to happen. And so in my humble opinion, it just does not make sense to read this book as though it were talking about specific events that are thousands of years removed from the experience and the lifetimes of these seven churches. But at the same time, and some of you are going to accuse me now of being lazy or Uh, hedging myself too much. At the same time, I think we do need to see how the book of Revelation, especially in its last couple chapters, clearly is speaking to the finale of human history as we know it. That it is speaking to the redemptive and wrathful end of human history. Something that we today, along with the churches of the first century, are eagerly waiting for. And so just like we do when we read biblical prophecies all over the Bible about events like The Assyrian invasion of Israel in the 8th century BC or the Babylonian captivity of Judah in the 6th century BC. Uh, Just like when we read those prophecies about things that have now already happened from our perspective, we still do need to see the big picture realities about how God is at work in a sinful world and about how all of it points forward to God's consummation of all things. With the second coming of Jesus and the final judgment. With all that said, let's dive into chapter one. I want you to see here in the book's introduction that it's meant to help and encourage Jesus' church as it faces all kinds of suffering and opposition. First of all, his church as it existed in first century Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, but by extension also the entire church as it and we have existed through history and around the world. And so I've got three headings for chapter one as it orients us to the whole entire book. Verses one to three give a preliminary purpose. Verses four to six give a preliminary praise. Verses nine to 20 give us a preliminary perspective. So as it helps us to be encouraged and comforted today, it starts with a purpose, with praise, and with perspective. But first look at the purpose of it, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says this is the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus. It's from him and it's about him. The idea of apocalypse is roughly equivalent to the idea of unveiling something, of pulling back the curtain on what's really going on, kind of like in the Wizard of Oz when they get to the end and they see what's really going on there. You see here that this revelation is given from God to the Apostle John in order to show his servants, the church, the things that must soon take place. So as difficult and as strange as the book can be, it is not meant to confuse us. It is meant to clarify, to clarify for Jesus' church the true nature of the suffering that they're facing. We also see here in verse 3 that God intends for this book to bless us as we hear it and rightly respond to it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it for the time is near. This book is not meant to be an obscure intellectual obstacle course. It is not meant to be a theological curiosity. It is something that God uses to bless us by transforming the life of his church And of his people. So the purpose of the book is to reveal. And as God reveals, he blesses. But the book's not really about us, first and foremost. It is ultimately about the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And so that's why and how the introduction shifts from this preliminary purpose to this preliminary praise. You see it in verses 4 to 8. Like many other letters in the New Testament, the Apostle John introduces himself, he greets the recipients, but then he quickly launches into praising God with foreshadowings of what is going to be talked about in the letter to come. You hear in verse 4 that John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. we are going to hear a lot more about these churches in chapters 2 and 3 as they each get their own message from Jesus. Uh, some of those messages pleasant and encouraging, some of them alarming and troubling but here you can see that the first thing that they receive is grace and peace. Even though they are suffering, struggling, and in some cases sinning. But it's not just grace or peace in the abstract, it's grace and peace from the Almighty three person God Himself. As usual, when you look down there, you hear first about the Father here described in terms of his eternity, his self-existence, his independence from all things. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. And then you hear about the Holy Spirit, who's described here as the seven spirits before God's throne. Uh, The number seven, like other numbers, will pop up a lot in the book of Revelation. Uh, Seven in the Bible is often tied to the original days of creation. God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh And so the number seven, because of that, often has this idea of completion or perfection to it. And so another way to translate this might be the sevenfold spirit, uh, God's spirit in all his fullness and perfection. And then in this praise, you hear about Jesus, who's going to be the main character of John's apocalypse. Jesus is the faithful witness, even before John was or we are. Jesus is the one who's conquered death and the resurrection. And so Jesus says he is the ruler of kings on earth. As these Christians in the first century are facing persecution and even death, often at the hands of tyrannical rulers, John is reminding them of who Jesus really is and what he's really up to. In verse 5, John now leads the churches to praise Jesus in particular, no matter what suffering they or we are facing. Why? Why praise Jesus? John says, verse 5, because as our great high priest, he's freed us from our sins by giving his own blood on the cross. And so now, now as the great priest, he's made us priests. He's made us, John says, a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. And then John says that to him belong all glory and dominion forever and ever, no matter how much our world or our experiences might suggest otherwise. And then after John reminds us in verse 7 that Jesus is returning to this world in power and glory, in verse 8, God's voice bursts forth with another statement about his self-existent rule over all of his creation. God chimes in. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, which is a way of saying, I am everything. I am over everything from beginning to end. And then in yet another echo of how God revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush as the great I am, God describes himself again as the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The book's meant to reveal and to bless. And it begins to do this by showing us how and why we should praise God and especially Jesus as the mighty king over all the world's tyrants and trials. And so as this apocalypse, this unveiling, the entire book is meant to give Jesus' church a new and a right perspective on the world. But in verse 9, we get a preliminary perspective, a perspective on Jesus himself. We have this flurry of language and imagery drawn from all over the Old Testament. Uh, The book of Revelation is like a sponge soaked full of the Bible. You just barely squeeze it and it's pouring out everywhere. Uh, It deals with the Old Testament and focuses on the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament, even as it never actually quotes it. It's everywhere. And I only have time to tell you about some of the ways that the Old Testament pops up. But as with this language about Jesus from the Old Testament... John is showing us in this initial vision of Jesus, who Jesus really is, uh, even though these are not literal descriptions of what Jesus actually looks like or sounds like. This is figurative imagery from the Bible to talk about who Jesus is. John tells us in verse nine that like other Christians, he is sharing in the suffering and the kingdom of Jesus, and that this is happening to him while he's living under Roman exile on a remote island for troublesome people called Patmos. Uh, He's there because of his faithfulness to speak Jesus' word in a world that largely does not want to hear it. And then in an echo of how the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel operated, John says that one Sunday he was in the Spirit. John is a prophet in line with Moses, Samuel, and David, and Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and John the Baptist, and of course, Jesus himself, the greatest of all prophets. As a prophet, John hears the voice of God. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write therefore what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. When God spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt, they heard the deafening sound of trumpets coming from the mountain. In the life of Israel, trumpets were used to call God's people to battle, to call them to worship. And also every 50 years in the year of Jubilee, the trumpet would call them to freedom from slavery and to redemption from debt. All of this is coming together now as John hears this deafening trumpet, this voice, God has come. God is going to speak to him and through him the churches of Asia Minor and through them to us. God is leading his people to battle his foes. God is leading his people to honor him rightly in worship as their redeemer and as their rescuer. You can see here right away from the beginning that God is concerned for the welfare of specific churches in specific situations of suffering and opposition and temptation. And of course, it's the same for us today as an individual church and as individual Christians. Jesus' concern for his churches continues in verse 12 in this wonderful phrase, to see the voice. He turns to see the voice that's speaking. First thing he sees is seven golden lampstands. In verse 20, we're told that these are the seven churches of Asia Minor. You see, in the tabernacle and the temple that Israel built, uh, the seven-branched lampstand, the menorah, shone all day and night across the entrance to the Holy of Holies onto a table with 12 loaves of bread there, representing the tribes of Israel. The lampstand was there to remind Israel that God was present among them, that God was at home, so to speak. The lights were never off. That God was with them and among them in all of his glory, and all of his purity. And in the same way today, as his body on earth, Jesus' church is reflecting and projecting God's glorious presence in the world. And we hear here that Jesus is standing in the midst of these seven lampstands. He's present among his churches to watch over us, to take care of us. Later in the chapter, we hear about how Jesus has seven stars in his right hand. And then the stars are described as being closely tied to these seven churches also. But the point of the imagery, whatever the exact referent of these stars is, when it talks about the angels of the churches, whatever that exactly means, the point is that Jesus is holding on to his church. That Jesus is protecting it and possessing it. And so that's the first thing about this preliminary perspective that we need to see. We see Jesus in his concern for his church that in spite of their and our experiences and sins and temptations, he's present among us. He's protecting us. He's preserving us. In verse 13, John tells us that this figure among the lampstands is one like a son of man. One of the most loaded, important phrases in the entire Bible. It's a quotation of the Old Testament prophet Daniel, chapter seven, where Daniel, in a similar vision to what John's receiving, Daniel sees one like a son of man approaching God. He describes him as the ancient of days, one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days on the clouds of heaven, where this son of man receives a glorious eternal kingdom over all peoples. Uh, A kingdom that then later on in Daniel 7, a kingdom that the Son of Man then gives to the people of God. And we, of course, already heard an allusion to this in verse 6 where Jesus uh, is described as the one who gives his people a kingdom. John tells us that this glorious figure is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash, which is an echo of the special clothing that Israel's priests wore and also an echo of some of the descriptions of God's angelic messengers throughout the Old Testament. In verse 14, you hear that his hair is white, like white wool, like snow. Uh, In our world, we sneer at the elderly. Uh, We freak out about our hair going gray. But in the ancient world, especially, uh, having gray hair was a good thing. Uh, This image underscores Jesus' wisdom, his experience, his competence, But again, it's another echo of Daniel chapter 7. Even though in Daniel chapter 7, it's the ancient of days, God, who is described as the one who has the white hair like snow and like wool. This is one of many places in the book of Revelation where Jesus is identified both as God and as man. The son of man and the ancient of days are blending together into one figure in Jesus. You then have these images about heat and about light. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. Uh, These are all echoes of a couple of places in the Old Testament prophets where God or his angelic messengers are being described. All of it is meant to underscore the purity and the holiness of Jesus. It's meant to show us and describe for us his burning demand for righteousness and his searing ability to judge evil. And then his voice is described like the roar of many waters. Again, it's another echo of Old Testament descriptions of what it sounds like when God shows up. We hear in verse 16 that he's pulling out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, which is another echo from the Old Testament, from Isaiah this time, where Isaiah talks about how God would make the mouth of his mysterious suffering servant like a sword as God sends his servant to the nations with God's holy word of judgment and salvation. And so the point here with this bizarre image of Jesus pulling a sword out of his mouth is that Jesus is uniquely qualified to wield and to speak God's word, the word that conquers and subdues all of God's enemies across his entire creation. (coughs) This preliminary vision of Jesus is in the literal sense of the word, awesome. It's overwhelming and it's terrifying. In verse 17, John says that the experience is so powerful that he collapses like he's dead. But the vision is meant to encourage him and it's meant to encourage us. Because you see there, In this wonderful gesture, the almighty son of man burning in glorious light and heat and wisdom. The almighty son of man strongly but lovingly takes his right hand, the one that's holding the stars, and uses it to reach out to John, to place it upon him as he's lying there like he's dead. And Jesus says, fear not. Fear not. In a lot of ways, that's the message of the whole wild book. Fear not. Why? Because Jesus says to John, he's the first and the last. It's another way of saying I'm the Alpha and the Omega. It's a reference to God's description of himself in the prophet Isaiah as the almighty self-existent I am. And because Jesus is the first and the last, he's the one who so rules over the chaos and the evil of this world that he's conquered death itself. Jesus says, I am the living one. He descended into death temporarily, but now Jesus says, I live forever. And because I live forever, I hold the very keys to death and hell. I open them and I close them to whomever I want. And so, this living one, graciously and kindly reaching out to his terrified and his overwhelmed people, he's in charge. Whatever the world might be like. And as he clarifies in verse 20, once again, he's walking among his churches. He's holding on to his churches. And so, he says to his churches, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In this book, as strange and as scary as it might be, he wants to show you who he and who we really are so that we might receive and enjoy the blessing of his grace and of his peace. Let's pray. Father, show us again as we study this book together the goodness of your grace and your peace. We thank you that you always seek our good and our blessing, even though it comes often in ways that we could not have imagined or even wanted. But help us to receive your grace and your peace humbly and joyfully. Comfort us whatever we are facing as we study and reflect upon the experiences of your people in the first century and all through their history. Help us to take comfort in the good and wise rule of Jesus over all the evil and suffering of this world. We ask in his name. Amen.